Dr. Offit voted yes. Dr. McKinnis voted yes. Dr. Lee voted yes. That's the sound of the first COVID-19 vaccine getting the recommendation of an influential panel of advisors to the FDA, all but guaranteeing it will be available in the U.S. in the coming days. But having spent about nine hours listening to that panel discuss Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine, we've got a lot more details to break down and questions to debate. So this week on The Read Out Loud, we're devoting the entirety of this week's episode to the ins and outs of a vaccine product that could quite literally change the world. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Friday, December 11th, and we'll start today's episode with a quick review of the FDA advisory panel and what it means for the emergency use authorization of the COVID vaccine and the start of a nationwide vaccination program. Then we'll be joined by Scripps Research cardiologist and avid COVID commentator Eric Topol to get his take on Thursday's proceedings. Finally, we'll speak with Bill Gruber, Pfizer's Senior Vice President of Vaccine Clinical Research. Gruber played a key role presenting Pfizer's vaccine data to the FDA panel on Thursday, and we have questions for how that went. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for today's podcast comes from Pharma CCX, whose technology allows pharma and payers to negotiate, price, settle, and manage complex agreements more efficiently. Think of Pharma CCX like an uber-sophisticated dating app. We have technology that lets payers and pharma digitally negotiate through undisclosed criteria until conditions are met that are acceptable to all sides. To learn more, check out our case study from Sweden at pharmaccx.com. That's P-H-A-R-M-A-C-C-X dot com. Hey, Melissa, the FDA's outside committee of advisors has just voted in favor of Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine, saying that the benefits outweigh the risk for people ages 16 years and older. That's our very own Meg Terrell working her day job on CNBC, talking about how the panel of independent FDA advisors voted in favor of granting an emergency use authorization for the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. But that vote wasn't unanimous. 17 of the panelists said the benefits of Pfizer's vaccine appeared to outweigh the risks for people over the age of 16, but four voted no and one abstained. Joining us to discuss what happened is Stats' Matthew Herper, who spent his day, along with the rest of us, dialed in to the FDA live stream. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So guys, one of the weird things about today was that we watched this thing for essentially nine hours, and then they took this momentous, historic vote, and then they just ended it. And we didn't get to hear why four people voted no uh, on this major, major decision that really it seemed like was going to be something that everybody voted yes on. And so my producer at CMBC and I actually reached out to the four people um, who voted no. And we heard back from two of them as of Thursday night. And I'll, I'll just read their responses in case it's helpful to kind of uh, shed some light on, on what happened. And because I think they wanted their their opinions to be heard. Um, so we heard from David Kim, who um, is a doctor. He's at HHS. Uh, and he he said, I appreciate you checking. My no vote was because of the inclusion of 16 to 17 year olds. Unfortunately, I and other members who had also voted no did not have an opportunity to explain our positions before the meeting was adjourned. I would have voted yes most enthusiastically had the language been 18 years of age and older. 
And then we also heard from Dr. Archana Chatterjee, who's dean of Chicago Medical School, who told us that she's fully in support of the emergency use authorization for the vaccine for adults 18 years and older. She says, along with any measures that are going to help us get this deadly pandemic under control. So really, guys, it seems like it was the age issue. Yeah. So, Matt, help us understand what this kerfuffle over the 16 and 17 year olds was all about. Well, some of the panelists thought there just wasn't enough data on 16 and 17 year olds and were uncomfortable with that age group. And what I was really surprised by was the procedural stuff here. I've seen the FDA be asked to change questions before, and they usually do. I also, on something like this, I would have expected more than one question. And then there's that, the lack of the explanations after the vote. That's actually something that usually happens. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the panel is after they voted, they each go around and explain their votes. And it's usually really important to what the FDA actually does. There have been approvals that didn't happen because everyone voted to approve, but then they all said, well, yeah, but. So I was really surprised by that. You know, I think the headline here, the 17 yes, four no's, one abstention, I think people might look at that and say, wow, I mean, why are people voting no? I mean, is there something wrong with this vaccine? And maybe it gets to the whole trust issue. As Meg said, as we hear, is it's really not about the vaccine. I mean, they would have voted to you know, approve this EUA. It comes down to like a minor issue with these 16 and 17 year olds, especially when you consider that they're probably not going to get the vaccine in the early days of the rollout. Right. And a lot of those decisions are going to be done by ACIP, by the CDC committee. Uh, that kind of serves a similar role, but recommends who should get the vaccine. And there have actually been other vaccines where the FDA approves it for a lot of people because maybe it makes sense for those people to get the vaccine. But then CDC says that the people who should get the vaccine is a narrower group than the people who could. So, Damien, one of the other issues that came up today was this whole issue about the severe allergic reactions uh, that have popped up in the early days of the vaccination program in the UK. What happened there? So, yeah, it was obviously on top of mind for the panelists and, and seemingly for the FDA as well as to just how much of a risk this might end up being. Um, if this vaccine were widely distributed. But I think uh, Dr. Paul Offit from the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania made a good point that the issue is more one of perception than it is necessarily of true risk, which is to say that those cases of anaphylactic shock made news rightfully around the globe. And so anyone who has a history of severe allergic reactions, who carries an EpiPen, which is millions of people in this country, at least, probably that set off alarm bells in their mind. And they're concerned, you know, is this vaccine, which, you know, hopefully they desperately want, if it turns out to be um, truly safe and efficacious, is this something that I can't take? And so I feel like the main takeaway from the meeting was not that that issue would be a barrier to an emergency use authorization, but rather that Pfizer and the FDA need to be mindful of this such that they have a more fulsome answer for those many people who might have this concern as this vaccine rolls out across the country. So one other thing I thought was really interesting, actually, was sort of the discussion at the end. And it was sort of like they were getting short on time. And, and so they let every member have like one question. What is your burning question you really want to talk about? And one member brought up uh, this sort of bigger question of how do we reach herd immunity? And is getting kids vaccinated an important part of that? And it yielded some new information from Pfizer, actually. They told us that uh, they were going to start a trial in kids ages 5 to 11 in April of next year. They had already extended their current trials down to age 20. 12. And I tweeted out the news, actually, and I was really surprised to see, and I guess I wasn't surprised, I mean, considering the environment we're in, but it was interesting to see I got 
polar opposite reactions immediately. You know, one person being like, oh, thank God they're testing this in kids. I don't even want to send my kids back to school until we have a vaccine. Another person immediately was like, why are we testing a vaccine in kids? This doesn't affect them. I was surprised those questions weren't laid out more by the FDA either. There was a lot of talking, but it seemed like there hadn't been a lot of thinking about what the big issues that actually needed to be addressed were which, you know, is a problem. That's what's supposed to happen at these meetings. So let me throw this question out to all of you. So this panel was supposed to promote transparency of the vaccine review process, and it's supposed to sort of garner trust and credibility in the vaccine. Do you think it accomplished that goal? Yes, but I think it accomplished that goal, but it could have accomplished that goal a lot more. I think it was certainly far better to have held the panel um, as it was, and the exercise was worth doing. But Compared to some other FDA panels we've had in other big controversial moments, I thought that the the discussion was limited, that a lot of these, maybe they needed more time, maybe they needed more focus, but I thought a lot more ground could have been covered. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we, we kind of spoke about this before, but just ending the meeting before those dissenting votes had a chance to explain their dissension makes it such that in the official record, four people voted no. And you know, one can impute whatever motivation behind that one wants. And and that is not necessarily, well, it is bad for transparency, because it'd be more transparent to hear them out. But it's also potentially bad for inculcating public trust, because if someone, you know, in good faith or bad, wanted to disparage this vaccine in the future, once it's widely available, they could say, well, you know, four leading experts actually said it shouldn't have been approved in the first place. And that's not accurate. But we didn't really get on the record comments of, of those people clarifying what they really meant. That's a really good point. You know, I think on the flip side of this, I hear from a lot of people, you know, on CNBC in particular, I'm sort of asked every time I'm on, couldn't the FDA have gone faster? Why did the UK approve this before the United States? Why did Canada approve this? Bahrain also approved it before the United States. We'd be the fourth country whenever this gets cleared, unless somebody else does it sooner. Beyond just the sort of impatience, there are people who are experts in this space who do think that the FDA could have done this faster. And so it's a real debate. Um, How do you balance the incredible importance of having to convince people uh, that the vaccine that's been developed the fastest in history is also safe and will get us out of this pandemic if we all roll up our sleeves and take it um, when there's already hesitancy around vaccines in this country? It's an incredibly delicate moment and a really important debate. Matt, thanks for joining us. Get some rest. Yeah, thank you. I will. So among the thousands of people around the world tuned into Thursday's FDA meeting was Eric Topol, a cardiologist at Scripps Research, expert in clinical trials, and reliably good guest of this very podcast. Knowing Eric would be watching with an exacting eye, we invited him back on the show to share his thoughts. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to join you. So you weren't on the advisory committee, but we're going to put the big question facing the panel to you. Based on all the available data, do the benefits of Pfizer's vaccine outweigh the risks for people over the age of 16? Right, Meg. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, that's the protocol. That's the uh, population they tested it in. And that's the answer. Uh, you know, there there obviously are issues like people not in the protocol, as you, as you well know, uh, it excluded people with significant allergies to vaccines. And no surprise, there have been three people already in the UK that had allergic reactions to vaccines with a prior history. So yes, but you know, when you do a trial of 44,000 people, you give approval to the trial, 44,000 people who you included. So my view is the protocol uh, population, as long as it, it was adhered to, is the approval 
population. So that that was the sense I had going into it. And having been on many other advisory committees over the years, my long years, I'm sorry to uh, fess up to, uh, that would be the, the construct. That is, you know, what you test uh, in is what you approve for. So the panel voted in favor of Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine, but it wasn't unanimous. So what did you make of the four no votes and the single abstention uh, that came out on Thursday? Yeah, the unfortunate thing is that the chair should have had time to ask each of those to give a little more explanation, because maybe it wasn't just the age issue uh, of down to 16. I think one uh, mentioned something about the lipid nanoparticles. It would have been nice to get their, their explanation. I, I'm sorry that it, we didn't hear that because that to me is kind of the essence of what it's all about. So the UK was the first country to approve Pfizer's vaccine, followed by Canada, uh, which has led to some criticism that the FDA is moving too slowly through this vetting process. Do you agree with that? You know, Adam, I couldn't disagree more. The FDA in October took the unprecedented step of tightening the EUA. And they gave that message sharply to the vaccine manufacturers, including Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and all the others. And they made it so that it wasn't going to be a a very quick interim analysis on as little as 32 events. They wanted more than that, which I applaud them for. The next thing they did shortly after that was announce that everything was going to be public that all the data would be shared to the public. Uh, Obviously, that includes the medical and science community. And that was for transparency to enhance or promote public trust, that none of this was being done uh, in any secretive way. Now, as opposed to the UK and Canada, countries who I have the highest regard for, there were no public transparent deliberations. There was nothing done that would give out the data from those countries to the medical community or the public. So I applaud the FDA. You know, I've been very harshly criticizing Steve Hahn along the way and the FDA, but here, when it really mattered, they did an exemplary job. And I'm so pleased to see the FDA getting restored to the image that I'd always have held, which is the ultimate regulatory agency worldwide. And I think they did a great job. And you know what? A few days here and there, trade-off for enhancing, promoting public trust. I'll take the trust any day. So you've been critical of the FDA's handling of emergency use authorizations during the pandemic. So how do you think the agency has handled the review of this vaccine? And why has it been different from the way it did other emergency use authorizations? Yeah, really important point, Meg. Uh, I I couldn't have been more critical of the FDA. The uh, FDA, firstly, uh, in March, gave an EUA to hydroxychloroquine with no data, and ultimately had to withdraw that in June. The absolute lowest of the low was the appearance of the FDA commissioner with Trump and a czar at this staged public uh, breakthrough press conference, what they called historic uh, press conference for convalescent plasma, which was farcical since there were no data to warrant that. In addition, there was an EUA for remdesivir, uh, and then ultimately even a full approval for remdesivir. So if you go back and look at all these approvals and EUAs, you'd say none of them really were substantiated by data, but they really stepped up. I mean, you know, it looked to me that 
Han and the whole crew at FDA had really taken this very seriously. And this was different than the prior one. So I'm actually feeling very good about the, the approval and the process of the vaccine, which mattered the most. I, I should say, you know, this is the most important series of clinical trials in our generation. You may lose sight of that because you're all young people. I'm the old dog, but this is our exit strategy. It has to be done right. If Han had kowtowed to Trump and the manufacturers to get an early October vaccine EUA, which was in the works, the downside of that would have been without all this data, without all this transparency, it would have been forced through. And that could have happened by statute an EUA means may be effective. That means anything. So here, the tighten up criteria are really uh, important. I, I can't stress that enough. And so just to dig into that a little bit more, I mean, to what do you attribute sort of this change uh, for, for Dr. Hahn and how he's approached this process with the vaccine versus those previous processes? And, you know, we know that you've had conversations with him, right? Do you, do you think that affected um, how he is looking at this? How do you explain that? I did have conversations with him uh, as recently as uh, last week. Uh I was surprised, Meg, that when I sent that really tough letter, open letter to him and the, the medical community, that he should resign or tell the truth about what really what happened, he called me. And, and you know, I, then over the course of multiple conversations, we became friends. I, I know he was in dark despair about what happened with that convalescent plasma. And I do think that led to a turnaround. I do think that he realized that what he got kind of trapped in by uh, following the uh, chain of command was a big mistake. I mean, he didn't say it outright, but that was my sense. And I think he did what it took to get the FDA back, you know, restore the trust. He did it. And I give him ultimate kudos for that. So going back to Thursday's meeting briefly, you know, you mentioned wishing you could have heard from some of the panelists as to why they voted no. Were there any questions you had for Pfizer that didn't get brought up that, that you would ask them now if you had the chance? You know, Pfizer, I give them credit. I mean, they, they basically did a really good job here. There are a lot of questions I might have asked. So firstly, does this vaccine, which is so potent, does it achieve this sterilization immunity? Or are we going to have some of us who get the vaccine, are we going to have this virus harboring in our nasal mucosa and passing it along unwittingly, even though we're protected from getting illness. How are we going to know about the durability of this vaccine when they're going to cross over people from the placebo arm and we lose that control anchor? And then, of course, there are all the holes like we only had 23 pregnant women in the trial. None of them have delivered yet, as far as I know. We don't know about the um, aged beyond age 90. Interestingly, the highest age of a person who got the vaccine was 89. And the first person in the world who got the vaccine on an open basis was age 90 in the UK, uh, before William Shakespeare, uh, of course. And I'm worried about immunosenescence. Do they need a lower dose or a higher dose to get the best results? We should explore that. But, you know, the, the, the elderly, the advanced elderly don't get enough respect. You're kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of, of health care. And I think we should really look into that. No less 
the people under age 16, which of course they're starting to work on. Now, the last thing that's missing here is the severe infections. So Moderna really iced that. They had 30 severe infections in the placebo group versus zero in the um, vaccine group. It wasn't as strong a signal with Pfizer. Now I'm guessing there's no difference materially between these two vaccines, but I'd like to know more about the severe infections and the prevention uh, as, as the trial moves forward. Because you know, just preventing mild illness is, to me, not as good a efficacy signal as severe. Eric, thanks for coming on the show and especially for calling me a young guy. <laughs> All of you are young. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, no, I always enjoy the chance to interact with you. These advisory committee meetings require a ton of preparation. For the company sitting before the FDA, it's a public grilling by the country's top experts in the field. And in this case, it took place amid a once-in-a-century pandemic in front of thousands of people streaming the meeting live. Dr. Bill Gruber was a key part of Pfizer's team for the event. He answered the committee's questions for many hours today after no doubt preparing for this moment for weeks and after, of course, working to develop a vaccine that broke every record in the books in terms of speed. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Bill, we're recording this just hours after the vote. How do you feel tonight? It's a mix of exuberance and exhaustion, right? Exuberance <laughs> because I think this is a, an incredibly important uh, step to bring a potentially life-saving uh, and certainly illness-sparing vaccine that we uh, have put forward before the committee is safe and effective. And I think uh, I was very pleased, of course, at the vote uh, where they agreed uh, with a 17-4 vote with one abstention, I guess. <laughs> so we, of course, want to talk about that vote and about what happened at the panel. But first, could you take us a little bit behind the scenes as to how one prepares for this process? I mean, are there rehearsals? Do you do like presidential style debate prep? How do you prepare for this moment? It's great. We don't have any stand-ins for the committee members, like I guess they do for the presidential uh, debates. But this is actually was unique in the sense that, honestly, for the VRPAC meetings, we typically uh, prepare months in advance. We didn't have that luxury here. So we really condensed this into a matter of uh, days to weeks, just as you said. And we spend a lot of time paying attention to delivering a message that can convey uh, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine and an attempt to anticipate questions. So we put together a whole list of possible questions that might come up uh, we put together talking points, we put together slides, and then we have a very sophisticated interface with an outside vendor that basically can bring up slides or bring up talking points. Uh, we have a whole team kind of sitting in a bullpen, if you will, and they have, in my view, the hardest job because they've got to sort of anticipate, well, that question, I think we have a slide on that. Much of it is in our heads, but it's great to have the prompts uh, to be able to be responsive because we want to, you know, when the questions come up, we don't want to be in a position to say, well, we'll get back to you on that. We want to be able to answer right then uh, with the best information we have available. So we wanted to ask you about Pfizer's decision to file for the emergency use authorization for people as young as 16. You know, we understand that this is the indication in the UK as well. So this seemed to have been the reason a number of the panel members voted no, that there weren't enough data in kids who are 16 and 17. So tell us about what the data show and why file for those ages now. The argument is that, and, and we certainly worked with the uh, FDA on this, is that a 16 or 17-year-old is very much like a young adult, less so 
than they are like a five to 11 year old who's uh, not uh, gone through puberty and, and matured. And so there's very little reason to believe that an individual who's 16 or 17 is going to behave differently uh, to a vaccine than one who is 18. In addition to that, one of the things that I think may not have been completely appreciated that I tried to bring out in one of the questions is we not only submitted data for the 16 to 17 and above, 16 all the way above 85 now, that we also have been looking at a population of 12 to 15-year-olds. And we have approximately 100 that were a part of the data that we submitted where the reaction profile, the fever, chills, the local reactions were similar to what we were seeing in the older group. Now, the FDA has to ultimately judge that. Uh, but on our view, it was similar. So we felt the 16 to 17 years were sort of bookend, even though we didn't have as much information in that group. If the 12 to 15 year olds look pretty good and the 18 to 25s look pretty good, then probably the 16 to 17s are with the data that we had. So it seemed like the panel was very enthusiastic about how well the vaccine protected people from symptomatic cases of COVID-19 in the data you submitted. But they had outstanding questions about data that you just don't have yet, specifically how well the vaccine protects against asymptomatic infection and how well it might prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2. So I'm curious, how does Pfizer intend to gather the data necessary to be able to answer those questions? The key element of that that came through, I think, in answers, uh, particularly that Catherine Jansen, uh, the head of uh, vaccine research and development gave, and I think maybe I answered this as well, is that as part of the protocol, We've obtained sera that bracket the period of time that individuals are getting vaccinated and when they might uh, likely have illness. And we can take that sera, and you probably heard some discussion about looking at uh, the end protein of the virus. That is something that is not in the vaccine. We're taking the spike protein or the S to make the vaccine. So the end protein becomes a good target to look at to see whether someone has developed an antibody response to infection that's distinguishable from receiving the vaccine. So the plan is, is over the course of time to look at antibody individuals in the trial and see if we look at the vaccine recipients or we look at the uh, placebo recipients, who made antibody to that end protein. And if they did, that meant they were infected, whether they had an illness or not. So we then look at that in the context, well, did they have an illness? If they didn't, then that's an asymptomatic infection. And we could basically then say, okay, look, it looks like we hope, and it's our expectation uh, that the vaccine recipients had fewer infections than uh, the uh, placebo recipients. There is some talk about potentially trying to do more comprehensive surveillance routinely on individuals with swabs rather than waiting for illness. That's hugely labor intensive and has low yield. And particularly if we're talking about moving individuals potentially from placebo to vaccine, we have a very narrow window to take that on. But we're looking at that as a possibility as well. So there was a lot of discussion today about um, what should happen to the people who volunteered for the trial uh, and were randomized into the placebo group. You know, a lot of folks think, give them the vaccine right away. They, they volunteered for this trial and they made this possible for all of us. Um, but the FDA would like for you to keep the study going as long as possible and to collect that, that perfect, you know, blinded uh, placebo-controlled data for as long as possible. What is the solution to that, do you think? It's challenging. Again, we're trying to solve for two things. One is doing what's right for the participants who invested in engaging the trial. They invested with, with the provision in informed consent that there was no obligation on our part to provide them the vaccine. But nonetheless, from an ethical perspective, 
it's clearly important for individuals, uh, certainly that already have emergency use authorization and fit into that category to let them know about that. And for our purposes, it makes more sense to give them the vaccine in the trial. You know, I think there's been a misunderstanding about one of the things that I said, and I want to clarify that. The way that we're proposing to do this is to just take individuals that have received placebo and then uh, have them receive the vaccine when they uh, essentially qualify for emergency use authorization and then the recommendations from the CDC. One of the things that we heard about today that was offered up and something that we've thought about is a crossover where you don't just bring the people that receive placebo back, you bring everybody back and you give the vaccine recipients two doses of placebo and you give uh, the uh, placebo recipients two doses of vaccine. And the argument was made, well, you can do that in a blinded way. Well, that's true in terms of the immediate sort of looking for reactions. People don't know necessarily what, which, what they got when, but they all have now received vaccine. So you really haven't blinded anybody as to, gee, am I going to be protected during the season or not? But it logistically means that instead of just bringing in 22,000 people for two visits, now you're bringing in 44,000. And there's the potential you're actually delaying the ability for those that need to get the vaccine to get the vaccine because you've got twice as many to have to bring in. So I want to really clarify because I think I've seen a news story out there that says, you know, Bill Gruber said that, you know, they don't they don't want to do give vaccine to placebo recipients because they got to bring in 44,000 people. No, we want to do it the way we designed it um, uh, because we think that's the most efficient way to uh, get the answers that are needed for safety and efficacy, but also vaccinate the placebo recipients in a timely way. During the panel today, I think it was disclosed that uh, Pfizer said that the, the application for the final approval of the vaccine would be filed in April of 2021. Uh, what will that process entail and how will it be different from the data that's under review now? If you saw one of the slides that I showed, most of the information that will be required for the BLA the FDA already has. So they basically have the efficacy information. And as I mentioned, if they want us to do an additional cut, which I expect they probably will, we can do another cut. They'll also want longer term safety information. Right now, as you heard, we have a population of 38,000 for which we have a median follow-up time of at least two months of safety data. They would like at least 3,000 vaccinated individuals with six months data. And so that will be a key part of that particular file. We'll also have information on the 12 to 15-year-olds that I mentioned. We're going to also plan to do analyses looking at the persistence of antibody as well as the potential uh, persistence of protection. So those sorts of pieces will come into play, but the critical pieces are probably the safety part that I mentioned, and I think anything else that the FDA want, may want in terms of longer duration of antibody and protection. And I should say, we don't even know that antibody itself is the main basis for protection. So we'll look at both the idea of who was protected as well as what happened to their antibody. So now that we're on the other side of that panel vote, it's been reported that the FDA could offer that emergency use authorization as early as Saturday. If that happens, how quickly will Pfizer be able to start distributing the vaccine? Right away. It's my understanding that this will occur very quickly. Pfizer has been mobilizing 
well before we even knew that we would be successful to manufacture and find a means of distribution of something that we understand, of course, needs to be kept at, at very cold temperatures, frozen, so that it can be delivered to sites and, and be administered. But I think uh, within hours to days is my expectation of when uh, the vaccine will be delivered. So, Bill, I'm wondering if there's anything about all of this that keeps you up at night. Like, what worries you the most right now? Before VRPAC, it was getting to VRPAC and basically getting uh, the uh, emergency use authorization. I think post VRPAC, it's acceptance by the community. We recognize that there's a fair amount of resistance in some circles or at least some hesitancy that exists out there. I think it's going to be important for all of us to be able to provide confidence to the public about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. And to be clear, as I think we were today, that our job doesn't end with the, the approval or even the BLA that we hope will occur, you know, when we submit in April. But we continue to monitor uh, to assure safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. So I guess our last question for you is if and when the FDA uh, gives this vaccine authorization for use in the U.S., what will that moment mean to you? I've been in vaccine development for over 35 years. But it's hard to top this, you know, when the whole world is basically frozen in place in many ways. So across the board, whether we're talking about the morbidity, the mortality, the economic damage, uh, there's nothing that I've been associated with that, that has the potential to have a tremendous impact on turning this all around. So I already feel that in the context of, of, of seeing the data. That was obviously a pivotal moment for me. But you're right. Once we see emergency use authorization, and I know that, yes, now this vaccine is going out uh, to uh, the United States and we're going to start immunizing millions of people and turning back the pandemic, that's going to be a great moment. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A quick programming note, uh, next week's episode will also be coming to you on Friday so we can talk about the FDA Advisory Committee uh, meeting that's evaluating Moderna's vaccine. Yep, we're going to be doing this all over again. In the meantime, thank you to Hyacinth Empanado who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you would have voted if you were on that FDA panel. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.